Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruits and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be. Thank you, Terry. Well, we've been asking in this series in Genesis 1 through 11, what went wrong? That's That's the heart, the question that's at the heart of this exploration of these first chapters of the Bible. And today we find out what went wrong. Today, uh, it is the the definitive answer to what is wrong with our world. Now, Maggie and I, my daughter, my nine-year-old daughter and I, were watching a movie the other night. And spoiler alert, I'm going to give something big away. So if you haven't read the sixth book of Harry Potter or seen the movie, then you're just going to get a spoiler. But it's been so many years, if you haven't by now, you probably don't want to. So, uh, Maggie and I... (laughs) Maggie and I were watching, this, were watching the sixth Harry Potter movie. I don't really care how you feel about Harry Potter and magic. I love the story. Um, and so um, <laughs> we were watching the sixth movie, and uh, Maggie is, is amazing. Maggie really gets into everything. Like, she is just, she is full-on, hardcore committed to whatever she's engaging right at the moment. And so she's in this movie, and she is feeling all the feels and in the story. And it gets to the point right at the end of the movie or toward the end of the movie where Dumbledore is killed. And I watched Maggie go, for no joke, at least one minute, solid. She just sat there, not knowing what to do. She hadn't read the books. She didn't know this was going to happen. And she was just so shocked. And so I kind of enjoyed her reaction because I just, I love watching Maggie's face as she's watching movies, Um, especially if there's any romantic stuff in the movie. She gets all into, oh my gosh, she's such a little, (laughs) such a little girl. Um, But at this point, I'm watching her and it's like, at once it's this, it's this shock of the whole thing that's going on, but it's also afterward as I'm processing and thinking, it's also kind of a loss of innocence on her part that this kind of betrayal that ends in Dumbledore's death could happen. And I don't know that she had really seen many times portrayed in movies or film or TV someone so starkly dying the way that he does, where he's, he's murdered on a tower. And I'm kind of watching the loss of innocence in my daughter right then. That this could happen. That we live in a world that this could happen. And so many of us are so cynical, we just take it for granted that that's the kind of world we live in. And yet when you look through the eyes of a child at the brokenness of our world, you realize that none of us really want this world that we have. None of us do. We all want the world where that is not possible. 
We all want the world where it is not possible for someone to betray another person. We all want a world where it's not possible for someone to hurt and to harm someone so deeply. We all want a world where it is not possible for murder to exist. We want a world where it is not possible for sin to rule. We all long for innocence. We all want it. And you can see it most clearly in a child who's losing their innocence as they experience the real brokenness of the world for the first time. Every time they see something new. You can hear it in the questions of a child who asks after some tragic incident why that had to happen. We are so hard-hearted and cynical to our broken and sinful world that we, we ask those questions, but we don't really mean it. A child, when they ask why, they mean it. They can't fathom why the world is what it is. Why it is so broken. And today's text, today's story, gets right to the heart of that question. Why is it this way? Why do we want something better? Why do we want a world that is so much better than ours and yet live in this place? And that's where we come to here. We've been walking through these chapters, and the approach that we've been taking is that the book of Genesis is Moses, the leader of Israel, the leader of the children, uh, the, the Hebrew children who are being led out of slavery in Egypt as they're heading to the promised land. This book of Genesis is Moses teaching the children of Israel about who God is and who they are in relation to him and how they're supposed to live when they get to the land that God's promised. And so we've been calling Genesis the catechism for the people of God. It's, it's a teaching about who God is and who they are. That's what a catechism is. It's a teaching about the faith. And so Genesis is teaching these people where they come from and why the world is the way that it is. And here in chapter 3, we get to the point where Moses is teaching the people about why the brokenness of their world exists. Now, these people didn't need to know that the world was broken. No one, none of us need to be taught that our world is broken. We experienced that firsthand. And these people who Moses is leading had just come out of slavery in Egypt, where their people had been enslaved for 400 years. Backbreaking labor for the Egyptians. No compensation, right? They get to live, and that's their compensation. They, they were intimately familiar with the brokenness of the world. They were intimately familiar with the sinfulness of the world, but they needed to know where that came from. They needed that question, why, answered just as we all do. And so here we get to the point where we're finally getting to the question, why, the answer, why. Up until now, everything's been really rosy. Up until now, it's been, it's been beautiful. It's been perfect. Up until now, God, through Moses, has been demonstrating for his people what their world is supposed to be like when they get to the promised land. Those first two chapters of Genesis that illustrate for us God's in, original purpose for the world, original intent, that illustrate for us what it would look like if we actually lived in a sinless world, that's God telling his people, hey, this is really what I want for you. This is what I want for your society. This is what I want for you. And if you obey me when you get to the promised land, this is what it will be like. But now we get to the point where we see what happened. 
And we read first, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And this is, this is where we get to our first point. God's word is God's word. Underline, underscore, asterisk, bold that, italicize that stuff. God's word is God's word. Not mine, not yours, not the serpent's. It doesn't belong to anybody but him. And here we have a created being, the serpent, in the garden, coming up to Eve and saying, yeah, is that really God's word? Is, is it really what God said? Are you sure that's what God said? Are you sure that's what he wants for you? And there's an irony here, because Adam and Eve are created to rule over creation in God's place. They're, they're empowered by God to be God's representatives to rule over the created world. And here, one of the creatures that they're supposed to rule over is coming to them and tempting them away from God's purpose for them. And so immediately, there's already a reversal here where these two humans, they're the ones who are supposed to be in charge. They're the ones who are supposed to be telling the serpent what's what. And here comes the serpent coming, turn, reversing the roles, turning it back on them and saying, yeah, but is that what God really meant? Is that what God really said? And implicit in the serpent's question, right, right there in the center, is, is the idea that we can stand in judgment over God's words. Implicit in the serpent's question, just right there in the foundation of the temptation, is the idea that you and I could be the right judges of what God has said. That rather than sitting in submission under God's instruction to us, rather than sitting in submission under what God has told us, we can instead take the place of judgment and judge what God has said as to be whether it's right or wrong for me at any given moment. And isn't this the world we live in? Isn't this so much of the church we live in? Where we can stand in judgment over God's word and decide whether that's good for me right now? You know, I know, I know the Bible says that, but that's just not really good for my life right now. I know that's what God said, but that's not really how I'm experiencing things right at the moment. I know that's what God said, but that doesn't really feel right in the culture that I'm in. And so I need to compromise, or I need to stand in judgment over what God has said in order to make my way in the world, in order to make my life more comfortable, in order not to come up and rub up against the outside world and the culture in ways I don't want to or that make me uncomfortable. We live in a world that's so pain-averse and so comfort-ready that we want to stand over God's word anywhere that it makes us uncomfortable or it challenges us in the way that we choose to live and we want to live. And that's what the serpent is tempting Eve to right now. That's what he's coming to. Did God really say that? Are you sure? Because if he didn't, man, imagine how delicious that fruit he told you not to eat would be. Because if God's words aren't really God's words, or if God's words aren't really clear and plain, or if there's any wiggle room at all, then you don't even know what you're missing out on. You don't even know how delicious the fruit of that tree would be. You don't even realize how many benefits would come to you if you would just compromise on this thing God told you and eat that fruit. How many people in this room 
have ever been tempted away from something God has led you to or a road he has put you on because it would mean greater comfort for you or because the road that God has put you on looks tougher than this road over here that I could walk. How many of us in this room have ever been in that position? That's exactly what the serpent is tempting Eve to right now. Eve, man, that road of eating that fruit would be so much tastier than not. And they've got this whole garden. I mean, they got this whole garden that's just ready, bursting with fruit, bursting with food for them. All the most delicious things in the world are ready for them. But it's that one thing you can't have that you imagine is tastier than all the other stuff. And so that's what the serpent's bringing. And rather than trusting that God's word is God's word, Eve does what so many of us do. Now, you have to be careful with this, because sometimes we portray Eve almost as though she is sinning before sin has entered the world. What she does here is not sin. What she does here is try to protect herself from the temptation of the serpent. And so she exaggerates God's own words. She says, he told us not to eat of it or to even touch it. Don't go near it. Now, this is exactly what the Pharisees would do so many years later. This is exactly what so many of us do. We put guardrails around God's commands sometimes. We put guardrails there to keep us from even getting close to disobeying. And so Eve, in her natural, in her human, innocent, naive state, because I think she is still a little naive at this point. I think she's still learning. She's still growing. She's still trying to figure out what it means to be human in this place. And so in her state, she's saying, well, I can't even touch it. Because if I touch it, I'm afraid I'll eat it. So I can't even go near that tree. Don't approach it. And so she exaggerates God's commands. This is not a sinful impulse. She is trying to protect herself. The problem is that when we add to God's commands or we exaggerate them or we build these extra guardrails, they, they become self-destructive. They almost they add a layer of temptation there. They, because they, they add a layer that, 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 that is almost almost impossible to obey. That's what the problem was for the people under the rule of the Pharisees, who under the influence of the Pharisees when Jesus came along. Jesus says, you, you've yoked them, you've saddled them with all these extra commands that God didn't give. And it's self-destructive because now the people can't possibly obey and they don't. You've been in that place, right? Where like you've gotten into a habit that you don't really want to do, but you can't break it. Or you really want to start something, or you really want to do something, and you just put it off, and you put it off, and you put it off, because it's easier not to. You, you've built these things up in your head, or there are so many times, like, I, I, I have a hard time calling people. I'll just be real straight with you. I get anxiety around the phone. I have an extremely hard time calling people. It takes a lot of effort for me to press the send button when I put a number in my phone. I'm, I'm not even joking. So if I haven't called you, I apologize. Um, and, and I get to the point where it's been, okay, it's been two weeks, I need to call that person. No, it's been three weeks, I need to call that person. And I get to the point where I'm like, is it even worth it anymore? And the answer is yes, it would be. Yeah, pick up the phone, make the phone call. But I've put it off now for so long that it doesn't even feel worthwhile doing, and so I don't overcome my own weakness. I just keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And that's kind of the habit that we get into when we build these extra guardrails around ourselves, or we feel like there's some standard we're not living up to. It's easy to just put it off and put it off and put it off and never get into the habit of obeying or doing the thing that we need to do to get better, 
right? I'm supposed to be training for a half marathon next year. You know how many miles I have run since I signed up for this half marathon? Zero, right? That's a big goose egg, right? Um, and I keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. Because that's what we do when we put these extra guardrails and these extra expectations around ourselves, it becomes extra incentive to not do the thing. Or in this case, putting the guardrail around the tree intensifies the temptation. And so the serpent says, Eve, did he really say that? And Eve says, he told us not to even touch it. Don't go near that tree because then you might eat it. And in that day, we will die. And the serpent then questions God's words again. Are you sure you'll die if you eat of that tree? You sure about that? I don't know. I don't know. In fact, the serpent goes on to say, no, you won't die. Just flatly contradicting God's words. And now this crafty serpent, this crafty created thing that Eve is supposed to be ruling over has so gotten into her head and wormed into her mind and into her heart that it seems like she believes him when he says, no, no, that's, that's just not true. You won't really die. God was exaggerating. God didn't really mean that. You can judge for yourself what is good, and that fruit looks super tasty, Eve. So you should have that fruit. And now, through this roundabout process, the temptation is complete. The serpent has wormed his way in, caused her to question God's own words, caused Eve to stand in judgment over what God has clearly said to her. And she says, you know what, I think I'll do it. I'll take that fruit, and I'll be like God. That's the serpent's promise to her. God doesn't want you to do that because God's jealous, because God knows if you eat of that fruit, you'll just become like God. And Eve's like, oh, man. Now, the great irony here is they're already made in the image of God. They're already made to image God. They're already made to do what God does on the earth and rule over the earth as God has called them and empowered them to do. But that's nothing to that next little step, to that next grasping for power. And so Eve takes the fruit and hands it to her husband. Now, I, I got to be clear here, right? This is not all on her because the scripture reads, he was with her. She takes it, turns, and goes, here, honey. He's right there. He is as implicated in this as she is. They're doing this together. And they both fall to temptation. And what happens now is what happens every single time one of us tries to take the place of God. Every single time a human being tries to stand in the place of God and judge God's words and decide whether God is true or not and decide whether I want to be God for myself or not, the world falls apart. It goes to ish. The world falls apart. When we try to stand in the place of God, when we try to take God's authority, when we try to usurp God's position, when we stand in judgment over God's words and we decide whether they're right or wrong in any given moment, that's the beginning of the end for us. Just as it's the beginning of the end for them. And so God comes in and, and God's seeking them out. God comes to the garden after Adam and Eve have eaten of this fruit, and now their vulnerability is shattered. They have to clothe themselves where previously they were naked and unashamed. And now they, they're hiding from God, something they've never done before, ever. 
because there's never been any need to. Now they're ashamed. They're feeling shame for the first time. Imagine what's going on in their hearts. They've never felt fear. They've never felt shame. They had no idea what these emotions were. And now all of a sudden they've eaten of this fruit and immediately they're like, whoa, whoa. I'm ashamed. They don't even have a word for it, right? Like we are, we're something. We're not, there needs to be something here. And so they go and make these little clothes out of fig leaves, these pathetic attempts to cover themselves up, and they start hiding from God, and now they're afraid, and they're fearful, and they're shameful, and they don't know what these emotions are, and they must just be feeling a billion things all inside of themselves as God is looking for them. The God who they've enjoyed intimate communion with, the God who has loved them, who breathed life into their nostrils, the God that they've walked with in the cool of the afternoon every single day and had beautiful conversations with as God has taught them about the world and about the place that they live and about their mission and their purpose in it. And now God comes looking for them and God can't find them. Where are you? And he comes across them and they're hiding because they know they've done wrong. Wrong didn't even exist before this. They didn't even have a concept of it. They didn't have any idea what they were doing. Now they know they've done wrong. And so, God looks to them. And I imagine, imagine when God looks at his creatures, he looks at Adam and Eve, and he looks at the serpent, and he looks at the creation around them, God's heart is just breaking. Totally broken. I think sometimes we come to this passage and we read the curse of God and we imagine that cursing only happens when someone is like violently red hot angry because that's how we do it. We only curse things out of our anger and the overflow of our anger. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think here God is coming brokenhearted to his people and to his creation and he's pronouncing the consequences of their disobedience and this is not something God takes joy in. You listen to some pastors and some preachers, and it seems like God enjoys being angry. You listen to some pastors and preachers, and it seems like God enjoys getting that high from being mad at people. And that's not the character of God whatsoever. When Jesus sees brokenness in his world, his first reaction is to weep over it. When Jesus sees brokenness in his world, we read that he was moved with compassion. The Greek word splachnoi. It's like grossness, like in your bowels, moved with compassion. That's God's response to brokenness in the world. And God comes and he is moved and brokenhearted, and now he has to, he has to declare the consequences of their disobedience over his people and over the creation that he intended to enjoy perfect intimacy with forever. And God's heart is broken. I imagine God comes even with tears in his eyes as he says, what is this you have done? What? It's like the innocent child asking why. God comes to his people and he's like, why? You had it all. What have you done? Why this? Why this betrayal? And now God has to pronounce the consequences. And the consequences are that the world from this point will never look the same. It will be broken. The relationship between humans and the good creation that they were supposed to rule over will be broken. There will be enmity between the humans and the serpent. 
which is really a, a kind of stand-in for, for the difficulty humans have with all predators or all animals, anything that wants to harm them in the world. Adam will have trouble breaking the ground. The people won't be able to cultivate the earth like they would have. Previously, the garden <coughs> would just give up its fruits. Adam and Eve were to work the garden, but it wasn't toilsome. It wasn't burdensome. But from now on, they're going to have to break that dry soil, and they're going to have to irrigate it, and they're going to have to work hard. And so the relationship between humanity and the earth, the creation they're supposed to rule over, is shattered. And now they will fight with the beasts of the earth. They will fight with the ground itself. There will be enmity between them and the created order they're supposed to rule over. And then relationships between people will be broken. Between parents, Eve will have pain multiplied in childbirth. Now, this is not limited only to the act of giving birth. I think this is really a euphemism, not, not a euphemism, but kind of a metaphor of the, the struggle that exists between parents and children completely. Right. You're going to have trouble. Raising your kids is going to be hard. Being a family together is going to be hard. There's going to be struggle in your relationships with each other. Your children are going to wrestle for power. You're going to wrestle to have her power over them. And by the way, men and women, you're not exempt from this because, Eve, you're going to want your husband and he's going to dominate you. He's going to rule over you. And that's the way it's going to be between man and wife, parent and child, brother and sister, human community. We're going to have enmity. We're going to have strife. We're going to have struggle. We're going to be vying for power over each other. The inequities that exist in our world were never part of God's good creation. They were never an intent of God. The ruling of men over women or of certain groups over other groups or the differential power dynamics that exist in our world that keep some people down and raise other people up based on arbitrary distinctions between one another were never God's intention. We were meant to link arms as equals and go on God's mission together. Men and women and children and aged people and able-bodied and less able-bodied and able-minded and those who struggle. God, whatever our situation in the world is, the purpose of God in creating humankind was that we link arms as equals and we go on God's mission together. But because of this break, because of this fall, because of this disobedience, we now have strife with one another individually and corporately within our individual relationships and with the systems that we create as human beings. All of it goes back to the consequences of the disobedience of our first parents and each of our disobedience in our own lives whenever we want to stand in judgment over God's word and say that's right or that's wrong or I make the rules or I determine what is good and right rather than God. Any time we fail to submit ourselves to God's good purposes and God's instructions, we only perpetuate and contribute to this brokenness that God is declaring over creation. Any time. But thank God this was not the end. Thank God this was not the end of his, his plan. It could have been so easy for God at that moment to be like, you know what, let's just scratch this and start over. Like, let's just wipe this out. 
you guys have really messed up here. I'm just going to create a whole new thing, and it's going to be great. Because I think God knew any time he was going to give freedom to his creatures, this was a risk, and this was a necessary risk. As I preached last week, humankind is created for freedom. We're created to choose God, to choose love, to choose to be with him. And if we don't have the option to disobey, then our love cannot be genuine. And so God knew this was a risk. He always knew this was part of the plan. And so he didn't give up on us. He didn't give up on humanity. In fact, he calls out in a few chapters, he'll call out a guy named Abram and rename him Abraham and say, you're my, per- you're my guy, you're my dude. You're going to father many nations. You're going to father so many people and they're going to be my people. They're going to follow me. I'm going to use you to teach them to follow me. And then through them, I'm going to use them to teach all the other nations that I haven't yet called out to follow me. And then through all of them, I'm going to pull out one guy who's going to be my king. He's going to be my man. He's going to lead the people to me. And we see this throughout the Scripture as God calls out His people and He gives them a temple. He gives them first a tabernacle and then a temple. You ever wonder, I I thought about the temple a little bit differently this week. I was listening to this interview with a scholar, and he really helped to reshape my thinking on this. Because sometimes we think of the, the temple in Jerusalem or the tabernacle where sacrifices were made as this stinky, bloody, awful place where there's violence happening all the time toward animals. Like all these sacrifices are being made all the time, and it's just gross and stinky and bloody. And the scholar helped me rethink this. He was, he was saying <clears throat> that when you go to um, like a pig slaughter or you go to a farm and, at, at harvest time and you're having a big a big party, and you slaughter a lamb or a pig or, or something to feed the people, there's no violence in it, right? People who have raised animals and really care for them, when it's time to slaughter that animal and put it on the table, it's not a joyful, like, violent ex- thing, right? There's care in it. They want to do what's most merciful to the animal to feed their family, right? And he, he was challenging us to think about the temple in this way. As these animals that are being, that are being killed are really, they're, they're food offerings to God. If you read through the offerings of the Old Testament, you got grain offerings, you got vegetable offerings, and you have meat offerings. The temple is really just the dinner table of God. It's the place where we come and we bring a dish, like to God's great, um, oh man, what am I, what's the word I'm trying to think of right now? Potluck, yeah, right? Right, when we go to the temple, when people go to the temple and they bring their offering, they're really just bringing a dish to God's great potluck, right? And it's at the temple that they can have a meal with God. And it's at the table where things are mended, where relationships are mended. It's at the table where we work out our differences and we come to be reunited together. It's at the table over a meal when things are really wrestled out and worked out. And the scholar was was challenging us to think of the temple more as the table of God, where we get to come, we get to dine with God. And so God institutes the tabernacle and the temple where he's, he's inviting his people to his dining table. And saying, hey, come and have a meal with me and we'll work this out. And by the way, I'll take my sin, your sin on myself when you come to my table. And then we see the prophets doing the same thing. We see the prophets of Isaiah in Isaiah 55.1 saying, come, using the words of the Lord, God speaking through Isaiah, talking to a wayward people who had abandoned God, saying, come, buy food without price. You don't even need any money. Come to my table, eat and drink and be satisfied my people who have walked far from me. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. 
to a people who don't deserve God's goodness, don't deserve God's forgiveness, don't deserve his mercy. And Jesus comes and he opens up his table to everybody. And in that last supper, right before he's crucified, Jesus through his life had been sitting at table after table after table who the religious people said, don't eat with them. But Jesus said, they're the people I came to have dinner with. And then at the last supper, he opens his table to his followers. This ragtag group of people who were outcasts from the religious system. These tax collectors and rebellious guys and like super, super religious dudes who thought they were great. They're all sitting around the table with Jesus. And Jesus says, come have a meal with me. And when you're here, eat of my body and drink of my blood. Because that's what unites you. This is the supper of the Lamb. This is the supper of God. This is the table where we work stuff out. And then Jesus goes to the cross. And afterward, we see the church gathering around that same table over and over. It's why the table is the center of our worship here. It's why taking that body and blood of Jesus together is the center of what we do as Christian people. Because it's at Jesus' table where all our stuff gets worked out. Our sin gets dealt with. And we are united around him and as one body. And so we see the church through the ages continuing to gather around that table right up until the end. Right up until Revelation 19 when we see Jesus come back for his bride, his church, his people, the people of God, you and me. When Jesus returns in Revelation 19 and we see that banquet table stretched out and all the people of God coming to the wedding supper of the Lamb where Jesus presides over his family meal and says, it's all been worked out now. There's nothing more to do. Welcome to my table. Right up until... Revelation 22, right up until the very, very end, when we read that Jesus has come back, the new Jerusalem has descended, the earth is remade, Jesus is now ruling as king, and we read in Revelation 22, then Jesus showed me, or then he, the angel that's showing John these things, then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We see here when Jesus has returned and he makes all things new and the curse of Genesis 3 is done away with and all things are made right. And in this great city of God that we are all invited to through Jesus Christ, there is a table set. So then in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, we read both the Spirit, the Spirit of God and the bride, Christ's people, God's people say, come, let anyone who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. There are two tables set before us today. There's the table of the serpent. The serpent who says, take and eat of that fruit. Take and eat of your life's ambition. Take and eat of that thing which makes you the ruler and the judge over God's words. Take and eat of all that the world has to offer you. 
We have the table of the world that would say, go indulge yourself, live and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so what you do doesn't really matter as long as it's not hurting anybody else. What you do doesn't really matter as long as it's for your enjoyment and your happiness. As long as it fulfills who you are, take and eat of that fruit all day long. We've got that table on one hand. And on the other table set before us is the table of Christ. The place where we come as the family of God and we gather around and we partake of the body and blood of Jesus. The table where we come and everything is dealt with. Where we are made one with God. Where we are made one with our King Jesus and with one another as his people. And so today, set before us are these two tables. And the question for us is simply, where will we eat? Where will we take and eat? Will we take and eat from the table of the world that is about self-indulgence and self-fulfillment and self-self-self? Or will we take and eat from the table of the Lamb, the table of Jesus Christ that calls us together as a family calls us to submit to God's love, to submit to God's word. The table that was won for us through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The table that has an open invitation to absolutely anyone. The table that says to us, you're never too far gone. You're never too disobedient. You've never wandered too far astray. You are welcome here. No matter what your story, no matter what your background, no matter what you've been doing, no matter what you're thinking, this table is for you. The table of Christ is open to you. The table of the Lamb is open to you, and Jesus is inviting you in today. Jesus is inviting you to his family meal where stuff is worked out, where God is there waiting to offer forgiveness and embrace, where God is waiting to call you son and daughter, where we are waiting to embrace you and say, brother, sister, here is the place where reconciliation happens. Here is the place where love is known. Here is the place where we become one in Jesus Christ. And so it is for you today to choose which table will you dine at today? Which table will you pursue? Let's come together to the table of Jesus Christ where our sin is forgiven, we are washed by the blood of the Lamb, and we are made one as His family. Jesus, we thank You for Your open invitation to us sinners. We who have been dining at the table of the world, we who have been taking and eating according to the instruction of the serpent, we who have stood in judgment over God's Word and said we will be the judges of what is right and what is wrong, we who have run far and walked away, we have turned our back on You, God, we thank You for the open invitation to the table of Jesus where everything is worked out. We thank You for the promise of forgiveness and of family. We thank You for the promise of new hope and new life in you, Jesus. And we thank you most of all, Jesus, that you have conquered the curse, that you have conquered the Satan. You have conquered our sin once and for all to give us a spot at that table. Would you unite us together as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, beloved by our King Jesus Christ, our Father God, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go into all the world and welcome and invite everyone to the wedding feast of the Lamb, to the table of Jesus Christ. Give us boldness to go 
and to invite all those who don't yet sit at your table to come and feast with us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.